0: Welcome, fellow traveler. You are now listening to the Tent
1: Theology Podcast. Each week, we have a Tent Talk where we pursue the renewing of the Christian social and political imagination. Hello, fellow travelers. This is one of your co-hosts, Sean McCoy, and this gets to be my first interview. Which I'm very very excited about. I put some feelers out to some some men and women out there in the world that I think can really help us along this journey. And one of those gentlemen that I reached out to is Thomas J. Ward. And some of you may be familiar with his work. He's been all over in terms of podcasts. He's written books and things of that nature, and he's very well respected in the in the arena of theology and what and what this is all about. And so I reached out to him. Um, my friend Seth Price over at the Can I Say This at Church podcast actually gave me his, his email and helped us connect, which I was very grateful for. And so if you haven't heard of Thomas, I'm going to tell you a little bit about him. He's a theologian, philosopher, and scholar of multidisciplinary studies. He is best, he's a best-selling and award-winning author, having written or edited more than 25 books. He directs a doctoral program at Northwind Theological Seminary in the Center for Open and Relational Theology, a 12-time faculty award-winning professor. He teaches at institutions around the globe. He's known for his contributions to research on love, open and relational theology, science and religion, and the implications of freedom and relationships for transformation. And I also know he's an avid hiker and he's one heck of a photographer. And so with that, Thomas, uh, thanks for coming uh, to Into the Tent.
0: Hey, it's
1: my pleasure. Thanks for that kind introduction, Sean. You're welcome. And as I told you before and for the listeners that are out there, I think one of the things I just want to, not to preface too much, but one of the things I definitely admire about Thomas is there's been lots of uh, people that I, I think we've come across and I've come across, I should say, that that have an impact on me in terms of revelation, have helped me understand things and open my mind to things. But what I love most about what the way that uh, Thomas uh, approaches things, and not to set things up too much, but I think he has such a, a kind way of presenting what he believes in a in a in a way that you can tell that he, you know, he he believes it and he definitely is authentic in his approach. But what I love most is I don't get any kind of feeling of of it's me versus him. And so that allows a lot of what he says and it has on a personal level challenge me and push me in such a way of where I believe something and why I believe it and, and could this be possible as well. And I kind of I take that page out of the book of saying, I think if everybody kind of approached uh, their opinions this way, firm, you know, with confidence and with ret- in, with introspection and retrospection, but also kindly. I think it would be uh, well received out there in the world. And I and I was just joking with Thomas a minute ago. I think it's important for us to kind of put this in a little bit of context. We scheduled this interview uh, before January 6, 2021, which is the day, I which I think will become uh, rather infamous and famous and all kinds of things in the in, especially in U.S. history, where a group of demonstrators stormed the Capitol building. And so I was joking with him that we, re- we scheduled this before that, and we're recording after, and it's kind of like, well, guess what? This is the first conversation I've had, probably one of the first we're going to have, that, hey, we get to jump into this idea of politics and theology, how we how we imagine these things, and, hey, here's here's something we can talk about. And so one of the things we try to get our, our, our guests to do, Thomas, is kind of give us some guidance around, you know, how to look at the, the social and political imagination that we have from a theology and from a faith standpoint. And so not to set up, I don't know if it's a softball or if it's a— or if it's a you know Nolan Ryan fastball that's coming at you, but you know in, in the wake of something like what we just went through in the Capitol Building and just the idea in general around politics and theology, um, you, can you fill in all the blanks for us and make and fill in all the answers for us and make it all good in about forty five minutes? <laughs>
0: oh, I definitely don't have the answers, and probably my first response is the response of many who are listening to this, and that's a response of bewilderment, pain, confusion, sadness. Uh, back to bewilderment again. <laughs> um, yeah, trying to make sense of it all. I I am a person who aims to orient my life and the way I understand the world through the lens of love. And so um, when I think about trying to interpret, do a hermeneutic of any current event, I want to let love... Um, be a a major role in that. And that includes having a charitable interpretation of the motives of people who do things I think are stupid. (laughs) Uh, So when I think about people who uh, stormed uh, Congress, uh, did some violent things, um, I ask myself, why? Why would they do something like that? And it's easy, I think, for us to dismiss people by giving an uncharitable interpretation, Mm. but if I want to interpret them as charitably as possible, I have to think that they want to see change. They don't think things are going the way that they should be going. They've been told the election's been stolen. They think that the systems uh, of our country are oppressive and are keeping the truth from seeing the light of day, and uh, they're they have a belief system that says use of violence might be necessary, and that brings them to do the kind of things they
1: do. Hmm. So, so I want to kind of dive in on that a little bit. Maybe you can tell us a little bit about open theology and, and, sure. and that kind of thing. But so, then how would you then apply that to a situation? Let's say that they're correct. Yeah. Let's just say that. So part of, I, I love that you you keyed on on that. Like their perception is like if you listen to them talk, and I don't want to, like, I don't like to label or, or box it, but if, the rhetoric that they continue to, to, to go through. One of the big points is that they feel like this was stolen. They feel like the the election yeah. was a, it was fraudulent. There was something unfair. All right, and that that's a core principle that we all. We all have real experience, and you have seen yes. it. We've been a part of it in all kinds of ways. Uh, when there's an imbalance, and there's something in us that just gets stirred. But I'm, I want to take that a step forward and ask you: Let's let's say it was as, as a, say you're a, a follower of the way. You're you followed. You're a Christian, and you say, "I know that this was fraudulent. I know that this something was unfair here." Uh, w- even if that's a hundred percent true, what maybe what should be our reaction to that?
0: Yeah. Well, open relational theology makes some certain claims about the way the world works, who God is, and how we ought to act. One of the claims is that uh, the future is not determined. It's not even foreknown with certainty by God. That means that things aren't sort of laid out in advance, and we're just kind of clicking along on a predestined or predetermined outcome. It also means then that our actions really matter. We have a measure of freedom, not unlimited freedom, but freedom given context, environment, background, history, et cetera. And our free choices have consequences and we're responsible for those free choices given, again, the constrained or limited number of options we have in any particular moment. It says that uh, we live in communities and relationships That the way we think about the world is going to be profoundly shaped by the communities we're in, the media we listen to, the people we argue with or don't listen to, uh, our own particular histories, families, churches, lack of church, whatever. So all of that is going to shape our way we think of reality and the kind of decisions we make moment by moment. It also says that God is relational, which means that uh, God is affected by what happens in the world. God can be pleased or displeased. God can be saddened or happy by events that happen that uh, either go toward furthering love, beauty, and goodness in the world or undermining that. So that's kind of a general framework that I bring to the discussion of theology and politics. I think this way of thinking about God and the world makes the most sense overall. I, I don't know for certain it's true. And, uh, you know, I respect people who think differently, but this one makes the most sense out of things.
1: So relative to that, if, I, if, I, if a wrong is being done to me or if there's an injustice like that that's out there, you know, how do we react? How do we react? How should we react? Even if we're justified in our anger?
0: Yeah, well, two things uh, come to mind. There's lots of things to answer that question, but two come to mind. First of all, um, we don't have absolute, inerrant, perfect knowledge of what's going on. So sometimes we may think we're being treated unjustly when actually we're not. Uh, we have, might have a misperception. And here the relationality of an open relational worldview makes a difference. We ought to listen to other people Not just the people who think exactly like us, but try to listen to people who think differently to try to come to better grips with the reality of the case. And let's say the reality of the case is that we're being harmed or treated unjustly after we have a dialogue with others and consult, you know, go beyond our own individual interpretation. Then the next question is, okay, what is the proper way to respond to that? And if love is your guide, which open relational theologians, most of them are like me, they want to take love central, then we have to ask the question: What actions might I take that would promote the well-being of the whole? Um, and that doesn't mean that you can't be forceful, you can't be angry, you can't be um, upset with things. But it does mean that you're not going to do harm to people and especially obvious harm. You know, there might be psychological harm that's inevitable when some people are angry, but it means you don't go shoot people. (laughs) Um, There are certain kinds of things you're not going to do if you're trying to really uphold the well-being of others. It does, however, mean that there may be some things you do that other people don't like being loving doesn't mean you're just extreme tolerance and you know you're wishing everybody just thinks you're uh, a great person uh, you may do some things that make other people uncomfortable um, maybe you're for instance if there's someone in power uh, political power who's using that power unjustly and creating lots of harm you act in ways that remove that person from power without killing them um, and that might be a loving thing, not only for the whole, but even for the person in power to be uh, we, um, to, to heal from their wrong ways of thinking and doing. So that's just a few things to put on the table. It doesn't answer all your questions. but No,
1: no, it's okay. So in, in regards to the president or pretty much any elected office, uh, does God care who the president of the United States is?
0: I think God does care. Yeah. I don't think God has the kind of power to control elections. So if someone says, you know, President Trump was God's person for the job or President Biden was God's chosen one. If they mean by that, in their particular view, God prefers Biden over Trump or Trump over Clinton or whoever, that's fine and dandy. But uh, if they mean by that, God has somehow rigged the system predetermined things manipulated things so that we know with certainty whatever the vote count was was exactly what god wanted and predetermined i'm uh, adamantly against that view
1: and so so i guess, I guess in that regard if, if if it doesn't i guess i to say it doesn't matter like you're saying but regardless of, so does that give us hope then that whatever the result is of our actions um won't won't be so severe that there will be, I guess I don't know, incredible. I guess an incredible. You know, like we're going against God by not allowing. If we're not meeting what God wants, to your point, and I do like the idea of it being an open thing. Of an, an, yeah. I don't know if that's the right way, but it's kind of it's not. It's up to us. We have an influence. There's a there's a responsibility there, which is what I hear when you talk, and that responsibility requires us to uh, to act accordingly. But if we don't. What, I mean, is that a is that where sin comes into it, or is that I mean, and if so, whose whose issue is that? Especially if we're talking about something as broad as like a political spectrum or a political election or something like that.
0: Yeah, yeah. If we willfully go against God's call of love, then we sin. Mm-hmm. Um, now, there may be some times in which we do something that's harmful that we don't know, we don't realize that you know, it might be evil, and so here I'm kind of splitting hairs between the difference in evil and, and sin. But in my view, there are true evils in the world, things that God didn't want to see happen. And in my view, God couldn't even stop single-handedly. Now, when something like that happens, I don't think God says, "Eh, throw in the towel. I've got nothing to do with this. This is your mess, you deal with it. I think God continues to work with us and all the actors involved to try to, to bring some good out of the bad God didn't want in the first place. I mean, take this insurrection from last Wednesday, if that's the word to call what happened. Um, Will something good come out of this? I suspect there'll be some good things. Is that what God wanted? As if God pre-programmed and orchestrated this thing from all eternity? No, I don't think so but I think God remains in the midst, working with all the agents and actors, trying to call them to bring something good from the bad God didn't want in the first place.
1: Yeah, that definitely seems to resonate. Um, Because those are the areas, those are the kind of conversations, I feel that give us hope, for lack of a better word, Yeah. that that it's not all lost, because it definitely seems like there's a doomsday aspect to it. And so I guess in that same vein, uh, one, of the, one of the things we've talked about recently on the podcast is prophecy and prophets and stuff like that. So kind of from a whether it's political or otherwise, can you give us a little bit of an idea of where you come down and how we yeah. look at people that prophesy or people that sure. consider themselves prophets or people that were?
0: Yeah, most prophecy is not of the predictive kind. You know, when I was growing up, someone said prophecy, they meant something like, you know, I don't know, uh, Hillary Clinton will be the president in 2030. That's a prediction for the future. Most prophecy in scripture is more along the, along the lines of, hey, you guys are doing the wrong things. You got to change your ways or bad things are going to happen. And you don't have to know the future with certainty to know that you know, evil brings a, a life that sucks. So um, that's the kind of what most prophets are. Now, there is some prophecy that's in Scripture that's more of the predictive kind. And of that, most of it is God saying what God plans to do in the future. So God doesn't have to know the future in in its entirety to know that God has plans for the future. And actually, if you read Scripture carefully, sometimes God has a change of plans. (laughs) Sometimes God says, I'm going to, you know, that all of Nineveh is going to be destroyed, and then Nineveh repents in sackcloth and ashes, and then God, said, God literally repents, says Scripture. So there's a change. Then there's a small bit of predi- uh, prophecy that's predictive that isn't about what God's going to do, but it seems to be about what creatures might do. There's some of that in the Bible. It's not nearly as much as most people think, but there's some there. Uh, uh, My favorite example of this is when Jesus says, uh, before the cock crows twice, you'll deny me three times. Mm. That sounds very specific. It seems to be uh, contingent on what Peter's going to do and Peter's not God. Um, So that sounds, that's more like the predictive prophecy that most people think of. Uh, someone like me who's an open and relational theologian, uh, we work with those difficult things in scripture to try to make sense of them. Some of my fellow open and relational theologians have uh, answers to, the, like, the cock crows, trice uh, example. I personally don't think there's a good answer to that. I personally go to the Bible and think the majority of scripture supports an open relational vision, which says the future is open even for God. But there are a few passages that probably don't fit that. And I don't think the Bible is a systematic theology. So those don't worry me too much.
1: Um, does, the, does the Bible need to be that accurate? I mean, is there, is there room? I don't think so. I
0: mean, I think the Bible clearly has errors in other areas. So I'm not a biblical inerrantist. I'm not a fundamentalist. Um, so the fact that some people would interpret events as God predestining or foreknowing doesn't surprise me. But what I think many people find surprising who think that the whole Bible is full of God foreknowing is how many things God doesn't know in the Bible and how many covenants God makes it sound as if God's not sure what's going to happen in this covenant.
1: <laughs> yeah, I know. It's uh, a, <laughs> what's a sort of, like I said, let's let's bring it down a bit from, you know, it's, it's it's like I said, it's easy to talk about, especially in the United States, about you know, conservative and Republican, uh, liberal and Democrat. Well, and one of the things we try to do here on the podcast is talk about politics across the board. And you know, I know you you're you have a, you have a professional life, especially in the you know, you know, academic world. Can you tell us a little bit about how you've seen politics and your faith play out um, in those areas?
0: Yeah. Um... Thinking about politics more broadly, just beyond, uh, you know, Democrat and Republican. By the way, I'm not either one. I'm not affiliated with either party. I was a a Green Party member 20 years ago, but I'm not anymore. (laughs) (laughs) So I I, I don't identify with any particular party. But just politics, generally speaking, that's just a part of the fabric of life. Mm. I probably have thought more about church politics than I have about academic politics, because uh, although I've been a professor for 20-plus years, I'm also an ordained minister, and um, the church has been both positive and negative toward me. The leadership, the political structures have made my life uh, pretty miserable sometimes, but other times have been a real resource for growth and fruitfulness. And uh, politically, I've observed some things that I think i've then applied to um politics in the popular sense of the word um, presidential politics or whatever that have been helpful for instance um i've noticed that groups tend not to take responsibility for a group action in the way that an individual might Hmm. so let's say um, Let's say a group makes a decision and they vote and uh, let's say there's 100 people voting and 60 vote to, I don't know, um, let's, uh, let's go to denominational politics. 60% decide to take away the ordination of some minister because of some possible uh, misdoing and 40% think that shouldn't happen. Hmm. And so the person's ministerial license is taken away. Now, let's say a year later or so, it turns out the person never did the bad thing that ever happened to them, that they were, they were innocent all along. The 40% was right, or at least the 40% did, didn't want to uh, take that person's credentials away. Um, it's really rare for a group to apologize for making a mistake mm-hmm. to that person. Now why is that? It's the dynamics of politics that if you're a a one individual in a group your vote is in some ways hidden and you don't feel the same kind of responsibility you don't feel like you can speak for the group because the group uh, decided as a whole Um, that means it's a lot if we expand that more widely i think in general if you're a person who's harmed by the system don't spend your whole life waiting for an apology. <laughs> I don't think the apology is probably going to come in most cases.
1: And that seems to go back to the injustice thing that we, we, we talked about before. Yeah. And then that Because I have a friend of mine, Marcus Watson, um, and I, he's a former pastor. He's been on a podcast talking about it. So this is, I'm not breaking news anybody that, that, that doesn't know or that he doesn't want people to know. He was falsely accused of having child pornography on his laptop, and it basically destroyed mm. his... That mm. that particular that particular job and, and a lot of his sense of you know, the organizational you know trust in the organization and whatnot because it was just it was I mean it couldn't have been more false and wrong and it was uh, the the story is one of those where you listen and you just can't believe that mm. anybody believed it or that anybody went down the roads they did or why they did it um, but and it also makes me think about you you alluded to earlier around but just in the just in the average day to day organization of any business and I and I've had, but I look at the church as well and think um, all that all that stuff coming to that area especially in the context of that particular vocation if you will that you know you're mm-hmm. there trying to you're there as a pastor you're there as a ministry leader you're there to you know, you're trying to do you're trying to do the spread the good news 24 yeah. 7 365 like really not just you know not just when you can but like this is your job everything about that and yet I've had so many conversations it seems like uh, with pastors who have been, I mean, just, I mean, destroyed, for lack of a better word. Uh, yeah. and, and people that even have come across it from a cursory standpoint and part of a ministry or a missional aspect. So can you maybe talk a little bit about where do we find um, the strength in, in those areas? And then I also wonder, as a caveat to that, Should we have church? You and I were talking about it earlier. Um, Like, what does church look like? I've heard this for a long time about what the church should do this and the church should do that. And and I go back to what a friend of mine said way back on my podcast years ago uh, when I asked her what I, I said. What was the biggest issue with What's the biggest issue you have with church? And she said it's in a building, and and kind of it becomes limited, right? It becomes it's in those walls. It's it's part of that doctrine and that organization's, you know, hierarchy and how they have, where they have power and their position and their ability to influence. Without all those things, it doesn't really have anything. And then I think to myself, well, should it, you know? And then, then once yeah. you're in there and you're politicking around and, right, somebody somebody has a job taken away unjustly because of the, the fervor of the moment. Um, and it just, that, seems, that seems to me ripe for deterioration of, of belief and confidence in those things to begin with.
0: I think, it, yeah, it is right for that. Uh, you know, what counts as church is a debated topic amongst academics like me. Some people think of church primarily in terms of an institution that has certain um, certain rules or traditions. I don't really go that direction. Maybe it's just my my Protestant upbringing, <laughs> my low church upbringing, <laughs> Uh, other people think of the church as um, what as particular beliefs or doctrines that unite a person. So it's the ideas that matter most to co- comprise a church. I think ideas are important, but that's not for me either. I tend to go more toward a community notion of the church, of what in Christian circles we say a fellowship. Um, there's something about uh, there being more than one person. And if you think of church in that kind of way, then you have to ask the question, okay, what's, what is it about this group that brings it together and forms these kind of relationships? And um, maybe it's some shared beliefs, sure. Maybe some institutions and traditions come out of it, sure. They don't have to. But if I think about it like that, it actually kind of helps me some because it allows me to look at some groups of people some fellowships to use that language language again as doing a pretty crappy job of living a life of love and being like Jesus Um, and others doing a pretty good job of it. And then saying the church ought to do X or Y, or the church really harmed him or the church messed her life up. Really what we're saying is a particular community harmed her or him or needs to change. Because sometimes we also give credit to particular communities by saying, you know, my life would be a lot different. It hadn't been for that church. And, and I'm one of those people. I've benefited and been hurt by churches. Um, so I, that helps me. It doesn't solve all the questions you just Mm -hmm. asked, but it helps me conceptually to think about church in terms of smaller units, May or may not be in a building, may or may not have a set of doctrines, may or may not have a long tradition. But these particular people that are probably somehow united by their affinity with Jesus, um, maybe that's indirect. I don't know. Hopefully it's direct. (laughs) But somehow that's an orienting thing, and that constitutes the church that may be good or bad.
1: And so... I guess I think of them we a lot of our, most of our listeners, a big part of our listenership is in the u k. and I know that one of the things that they talk about over there relative to that is I've heard a couple of our guests talk about that uh, the, the vicars or the see the Church of England, like they're really they're kind of ge- geographically responsible for an area like they kind of come in and that's that whatever's in that area is your church is kind of your that's your group and it's kind of this community base once so you're kind of forced to, uh, as well and and we really don't have anything like that that I know of uh in the in the states you know from the you know i mean i know it's uh, just as a generic aspect as you mentioned kind of our version of the protestant um viewpoint of that is how, how important is it for a church even if it isn't a building to be com- in in with the community and then how do you determine that in terms of what in terms yes, of how yes
0: yeah That's really hard. I don't have a great answer for you on that one, Sean. Sorry. (laughs) I mean, (laughs) here I am. Can you imagine if I gave you an answer like a geographical one? And, you know, we've been 10 months in the pandemic in which my church is almost all online, which is not at all based on geography, right? (laughs) Right. So that's a real tough one. those kinds of systems that divide people up in geography—the two examples I can think of in the U.S. is the LDS tradition, the Mormons. Okay. They yeah. are very geographical, so you you go to the building uh, near where you live, and then the Catholic tradition, especially in the South, Louisiana, you know, they have yeah, the parish parishes, system yeah. there. Um, do those work well? One <laughs> um, of the advantages the Mormons have is because they're so hierarchical and so systematic, which maybe some of the UK listeners can identify with to a certain degree with the Church of England, because they're so hierarchical, they can be pretty efficient. Mm. The downside is, however, that if you're someone like me and you don't really like hierarchy and you see the problems that generated from hierarchy and systems, then you 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 wish for more freedom. Mm. You wish for fewer boundaries you wish for communities of faith not to be described ge- geographically or whatever so yeah I-, I wish i had a really nice answer for that i'm more of just riffing on it sean
1: no which it is, was which is completely fine and it, i mean it, in my experience with um specifically on the latter day saints mormons in all my years, and I've had quite a bit of experience with them as friends, just, I mean, situationally, especially I think back here in Houston in 2017, we had Hurricane Harvey come through, which, you know, and somebody who was seasoned in that world and knew a lot about hurricanes and flooding and had no, not a single worry into that, you know, coming into that time. Uh, I, I've i seen, like you said, that hierarchy and that organizational and that response. They're, they're the kindest, I mean, just shirt off your back will come and bring groups of people to just to labor and i mean not just easy stuff either and not say anything about it and not expect anything about it so it's kind of hard from it makes you think of politicking it's like you may not like the the ideology or the fundamental aspects of what they're doing but man they sure are <laughs> they sure are nice they sure are kind they're supportive they're there for you and i don't just mean that in a generic well you know they hold the door open for you but they're they're involved in the community. They do these things. And it's kind of hard to argue with some of the results in the way that they are.
0: Yeah. they. Uh, I'm much more open to uh, the LDS Mormons being authentic part of the Christian tradition than most people are. So maybe some of your listeners will be shocked <laughs> if I say this. But um, I have a little test that I have in my mind when I think about the authenticity of any religious person. And that is, um, but I like them to move in next door to me. <laughs> and most Mormons, I want them to move in next door to me. There are some f- other, quote, Christians who I don't want to move in next door to me, even though they may have doctrinal issues that are much closer to mine. And at the end of the day, I'm with Jesus. You know them by your fruit, mm-hmm. not necessarily their their uh, correct doctrine. So,
1: so I guess I'm going to go back to the beginning a little bit. Not to not to go down that road again on that specific example of the of the insurrection or on, on the six, but even even in general, kind of pulling back out on that. In the, in the United States, we have I think kind of these two at least two warring factions for our 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 heart and mind, if you will, and one of them is our country, and the other one is is our faith and what we believe in, and I'm I have a hard time having sp- space for both of those, but it sure mm-hmm. is a strong. You know, being an American, being in this, in this nation, being patriotic, and you know, it sure is strong in this country. I mean, almost to the point where I think the rest of the world is over there looking at us, going, "What in the world is?" You know, it's like between COVID and everything else. I mean, I don't think anybody wants to come here, and anybody wants us to go there. It's like, it's like, it's like stay over there and don't come. Don't leave all that nonsense over there. But how do you, how do you you as an American, or if somebody who's born here, however you want to qualify that, how do you wrestle those two worlds in terms of your own? you know, prioritization and stuff like that.
0: Yep. So I'll go back to what I said at the beginning. I want to orient my life about around love. What I wake up in the morning thinking, Sean, is how am I going to love today? How is love my aim? And that's a question mark that is uh, has a variety of answers depending on where things are going and I don't always discern well what love requires, but that's my goal So when I think about politics in the more narrow sense of you know How am I going to engage parties or as a citizen of the United States? I want love to sit at the top. What does love ask me to do? Secondly is my particular religious tradition. I'm a Christian and I'm a Christian because I think Christianity presents the best overall framework to make sense of love. I think God is love. Jesus points to love. Um, and then third, or maybe even further down than third, but my political, uh, my my nation affinity, my patriotism, that's pretty far down my list. I'm not a person who thinks you ought to just eliminate all political Uh, activities from your life. I vote every time I do my research. I engage in political uh, conversation. So I'm not one of those isolationists who said, you know, if you're really a Christian, you really trust God, you just withdraw from the system. I'm not there. But I try to keep love at the center and try to then not only make sense of what's happening in my world, but then act in ways, vote in ways, dialogue, argue in ways in light of that overarching element of love that i think is best revealed in jesus of nazareth which is the person i'm trying to follow in my life
1: hmm. so so can you give us maybe a personal example of of you changing minds maybe politically like what like that you experienced love from somebody or something around a maybe a topic i mean not not to front load it but you know, sexuality, ethnic, you know, gender, race, whatever. Was there anything, maybe a big one, maybe a specific political uh, viewpoint that you were pretty staunch on for a while that you're not that way anymore? And kind of, what was that, what was that journey like?
0: I changed my views over LGBTQ stuff on intellectual, on intellectual grounds, not so much on relational grounds. Um, So that's probably not a good issue there to,
1: But it still sounds like a process that you went through that you had to...
0: Oh, definitely a process. Yeah. I mean, I think a lot of people change their minds on important issues based on the relationships they have with others. And if they come across someone who thinks differently that they admire and think that they have uh, good reasons for their beliefs, that's the way most people change their minds. And that's probably affected me some too. I was trying to think of a good example of that. Um,
1: would you mind going down the LGBTQ story a little bit? Would that be?
0: Yeah, okay. well, for me, it was love again it was uh, I was oh my mid-twenties, I was convinced that I had a person who lived a life of love, so then I asked myself, you know in those days we didn't call it LGBTQ. We just used the word homosexuality. That was the catch-all word. So I asked myself, could a gay or lesbian person have a right relationship with God and a right relationship with someone of the same sex? Uh, was that possible? I examined the scripture, and the scripture didn't seem to give me a clear uh, view on this. There was maybe eight or ten passages that seemed to uh, address something like that. But in all of those cases, there was plenty of biblical scholars who gave me reasons to think that there was... Um, not nearly as clear cut as I'd been led to believe as a kid. I started thinking about questions of reproduction and realized reproduction is not the primary purpose of most marriage relationships. It may be some, but not mm. all. I asked myself questions about health and safety and those kinds of things. I didn't see any real reasons. I, like, you know, I was told that um, gay men were promiscuous and it was the gay lifestyle and. I knew plenty of promiscuous uh, heterosexuals, so I knew that wasn't a good argument. The person in my life who was gay, who I knew the best, was a complete jerk. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't like I liked somebody who was gay and decided to change my views on LGBTQ. (laughs) I didn't like this person at all. So for me, unlike most people, it was more of an intellectual kind of a thing. Thinking about scripture, the traditions, experience, my reason, what love uh, suggests. And coming to my views on, again, at that time it was homosexuality is the word we used. Um, today, you know, I'm much more aware about a more nuanced kind of conversation. There's many other issues related to it. So I used the common language or the BTQ. But... Um, all that to say, for me, it was more of an intellectual quest probably than it was a relational
1: one. Hmm. I was—I love that answer because so many times it is that personal relationship is the catalyst to say, oh, well, I was totally against it until I found out that my son was that way or my friend was that way. As if, yeah, so the idea that the person that, <laughs> the biggest jerk, which I think gives a, whole, and that there's something to that, I think, in terms of it doesn't mean you have to like, you know, if you're not, maybe the person, don't let that person be the reason you're not feeling that way right don't do do, do the work as well well we'll i think
0: i sometimes say something like this um you know um there are some people who are jerks who are heterosexuals but that doesn't make me any less attracted to women yeah (laughs) that's
1: true or there's women out there that aren't you know, <laughs> yeah, the opposite sex. I'm sure for all of us, could tell stories. You know, they're not all bad in a thousand, and yet yep. we still, you know, have our feelings. Well, Thomas, yep. this always goes by way too fast, and uh, really, really appreciate the time. And before we go, is there, um, how, tell us a little bit about some of your your recent work? Uh, I know, I mean, you, you, obviously an accomplished author. Uh, are there any of the books you, because you have a few, you could promote out there, and kind of have what you're doing and some of the things that are going on in your world?
0: Yeah, thanks for that opportunity, Sean. Um, You know, among the books I've written, probably the one that I would like to make your listeners aware of is one that came out in 2019 called God Can't, How to Believe in God and Love After Tragedy, Abuse and Other Evils. Mm -hmm. And in that book, I, in an accessible way, um, lay out my reasons for thinking that God's not to blame for causing evil or even allowing evil. So um, that might be something people might want to look at into. It's you know on paperback, hardback, ebook. I even did the audio. So if you can <laughs> stand my voice, you could listen to the audio version. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, nice. And anywhere else, um, website wise, I like, and you because you you help sure. host a podcast as well, right?
0: No, I don't do a podcast, but uh, I have a personal website which is my full name, ThomasJOrd.com. I also, if uh, you you're interested in the subject of open relational thought, uh, the center that I direct has a website. If you just do a Google search for that, you'll probably find it.
1: Excellent. We'll put that in the show notes. All right. Well, my friend, thank you so much for coming on, spending some time with us.
0: It's been my pleasure, Sean. Thanks so much for the, uh, for the invitation and also for guiding
1: us in this discussion. Yeah, not, not a problem.
0: To further support the show, please subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow us on social media and learn more about Tenth Theology at www.tenththeology.com. Thank you for joining us and God bless everyone.